Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Airwave Podcast, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Peru, and I'm here today with Alexa. In today's episode, we're going to cover the maintenance phase of general anesthesia. If you haven't already listened to the first few episodes of this series, I'd highly recommend you do so, because it'll help you give sort of an overview of what we've discussed so far. Just to recap, in this series, we've talked about the pre-op assessment, setting up the OR, induction, airway management, and difficult airways. Hi, everyone. As Prue mentioned, and as you probably know by now, I'm Alexa. And with all those topics under your belt so far, you'll be ready for what to expect next time you're in the OR. And the purpose of this series has been to help you think about how to approach problems in this in anesthesia. And because anesthesia is a specialty that requires attentiveness and observation, this episode will be especially important because it goes over the maintenance phase. And unlike induction or airway management, where things are a little bit more algorithmic or step-by-step, you follow the approach that's been outlined, Maintenance is a little bit less of an exact science, and you'll probably see your staff do so quite differently. Nevertheless, what we want to highlight in this episode are some general principles about maintenance and about how to spot when things may go wrong during this period of an anesthetic. Now, this episode was written by Peru and was edited by Dr. Sean Jaw. And to our wonderful listeners, we love your feedback, and please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating on Apple if you like what we do. And now that you're all experts on inducing your patient and securing an airway, let's dive right into the maintenance phase of general anesthesia. Commonly, you might see this referred to as the cruise flight phase of the airplane analogy. So following that kind of airplane analogy from before, let's get started. You're probably quite familiar by now with your healthy 38-year-old who's going, who's undergoing a laparoscopic tubal ligation. And here we're using the same patient. So going back to the case, she's been successfully induced under a general anesthetic as we went through in previous episodes and is now receiving positive pressure ventilation through her endotracheal tube. Around the time of induction, you, che- you check to make sure she was sufficiently sedated and paralyzed and was adequately ventilated and oxygenated. You also check that she was hemodynamically stable, that she was sterile on IV fluids, had an adequate temperature, and that overall things were heading in the right direction. And then you think to yourself, well, the exciting part's over. What do I do now? And you ask your staff, well, what comes next? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go through this step by step. The maintenance phase of anesthesia consists of two primary goals. One, providing an appropriate depth of anesthetic for patients throughout the surgery. And two, maintaining the patient in a stable enough condition to allow the surgery to proceed. And here's one way to think about the maintenance phase. During surgery, we use medications to change the patient's vital signs and other parameters based on their autonomic response to both the pain and trauma of surgery. 
To explore this a little further, let's break down this episode into three parts. In part one, we'll talk about how to maintain sedation, because you definitely don't want your patient to awake. In part two, we'll talk about monitoring. And in part three, we'll offer you ideas for things that you can do practically as a medical student during the maintenance phase. All right, let's get started with part one. So now that your patient has been quote unquote put to sleep, how do you make sure they're adequately sedated? So in other words, how do you make sure they stay asleep? Induction drugs like propofol, ketamine, and atomidate tend to lose their effect over time. So this part is really important. What you need to know is that there are two ways of maintaining sedation during a procedure, using inhaled agents or IV agents. Let's first explore the use of inhaled anesthetic gases, such as the volatile gases sevaflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane. Out of these three, sevaflurane and desflurane are used most commonly, whereas isoflurane is rarely used in Canadian anesthetic practice. Fun fact, volatile anesthetics have a pretty substantial carbon footprint, and using desflurane for one hour leaves roughly the same carbon footprint as driving a car for 370 kilometers. And you'd be surprised at how many times you ask one of your staff about the reason for which they choose one volatile anesthetic agent over the other. And time and time again, staff have cited environmental reasons, actually, for which uh, they chose desferane. So I think that that's really, or sorry, that um, the reason why they use sevoforane instead of desferane. So I think that's something that's really important to talk about. The other non-volatile anesthetic that is also available is called nitrous oxide. And while you probably won't see it used too, too often, like you see sevoflurane or desflurane used, one thing to know is that nitrous oxide is flammable. And this might be concerning when there is cauterization in open air spaces, which may contain the drug. Nitrous is used pretty frequently in pediatric and OB anesthesia. Another important item to note here is that nitric oxide is used when there's a concern for malignant hyperthermia, although it isn't used as the only anesthetic agent in these cases because of its low potency. We'll get into this a little bit more in further episodes, but what you should know is that malignant hyperthermia can be a life-threatening intraoperative emergency caused by genetic susceptibility to increased calcium levels, which can be triggered by volatile agents. Finally, it's important to know that nitrous is very soluble and can cause expansion of air pockets, which is why it's contraindicated in cases like small bowel obstruction or if a patient has a pneumothorax. Now listen up, this part's pretty important. A big concept that we want to cover in today's episode is called MAC, or Minimum Alveolar Concentration. If you're only going to remember one thing about inhaled anesthetics from this episode, you should definitely remember this point. MAC is the concentration of anesthetic vapor in the alveolite of the lungs that is needed to prevent movement in half of patients in response to a surgical stimulus. So think of MAC as like a comparison or almost a proxy measure of potency. The lower the MAC, the lower the concentration of inhaled anesthetic required to sufficiently sedate a patient. For quick comparison, isoflurane has the lowest MAC out of any of the common volatile gases. 
And that means a lower concentration of isoflurane is required to prevent movement compared to other gases like sevoflurane. Remember, the goal is to make sure that our patient is unaware during surgery. And to do this, most providers would target a MAC greater than 0.8, which keeps at least 99% of patients unaware. Now, changing gears a bit, although I will emphasize that the MAC concept is super important to grasp. And so if you didn't quite catch it there, take the time to read up about it, and we'll also post about it in the show notes. But the second strategy that I would like to discuss for maintaining sedation is using a continuous infusion of IV anesthetics. And this is also called TIVA, or T for total, I for intravenous, and I guess that would be the V as well, and A for anesthesia. And multiple drugs can be used in TIVA. And usually this involves running a background of a sedative hypnotic medication, like our good old propofol, with the addition of other medications, such as remifentanil, which is an ultra-short-acting opioid. Now, I've seen staff have very, how can I say, strong opinions on the use of remifentanil, just because it is so short-acting and can cause uh, post-anesthetic hyperalgesia but I will leave that discussion for another time. Now, the dosing for each strategy is also variable, and like all things in anesthesia, is dependent on the patient's weight. And if you're curious, you should ask your resident or staff about more information on that. All right, so that's definitely a mouthful to get through. Just remember that maintaining sedation is through one of two options, inhaled gases or a TIVA. While inhaled anesthetics are a lot more commonly used throughout maintenance phase, there are a few reasons you might want to use a total intravenous anesthetic. So for example, when there's a risk of malignant hyperthermia or when the patient is at a high risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting. And those are definitely two scenarios where I've seen TIVA use instead of volatile anesthetics. And then speaking to those patients, In recovery room, they'll say that last anesthetic was the worst. I kept throwing up. And with TIVA, they would have no post-op nausea vomiting at all. So it's definitely a good strategy to have in your back pocket. Now let's move on to part two, which is monitoring. And this is about maintaining our patient's homeostasis, which is super important. And this can be super broad and encompasses a large part of an anesthesiologist's job. So let's break it down a little bit further. For each of the patient's major physiologic systems, you should ask yourself, what parameters am I concerned with? How can I measure or monitor them? And what can I do if something is headed in the wrong direction? And I would say the last question or the two last questions are the most important. And before we dive in too deep, let's take a step back and revisit the required monitoring equipment based on our guidelines from the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society. The required materials for each patient undergoing a procedure involve a pulse oximeter, a blood pressure cuff, or other invasive blood pressure monitoring systems like an arterial line, an ECG, and capnography to measure how well a patient is being ventilated. You'll also need an anesthetic gas monitor for when inhaled anesthetic agents are used, a temperature probe, a peripheral nerve stimulator for when neuromuscular blockers are being used, 
a stethoscope and appropriate lighting to visualize an exposed portion of the patient. And I know that is a very long list. Yeah, if you're ever confused, you can always revisit a couple key web pages and infographics released by the CAS, but it's important to know what equipment's required generally for an anesthetic procedure. So let's start using this in our head-to-toe approach. Usually at the front of the bed, you might see a temperature probe attached to the patient's forehead. You can use this to see if the patient's temperature is too low or too high and either adjust your warmer settings or use an IV fluid warmer for longer cases to make sure that your patient doesn't get too cold. If you've ever been in the operating before, in the operating room before, you'll know that the OR is definitely a chilly place. So uh, if you're not fully scrubbed in, it, it, you can definitely feel that a lot more so. Uh, so definitely keep that in mind. I'm always jealous when I see the warm blankets that they're being put on the patient and wish that I could be wrapped in one of those because, yes, it is a cold place. Now, jokes aside, what you will want to also check is the depth of the anesthetic agent and the patient's paralysis. To do that, you should first use your eyes and look at your patient for any signs of movement or pain. And the surgeon will be the first to let you know, believe me, if the patient is moving or if he thinks that that's the case. To check for adequate neuromuscular blockade, though, what you can do is you can use a peripheral nerve stimulator with two small pads that are placed on the patient's skin. And through these pads, a small amount of current will be run. And this is normally placed on a patient's forehead or along the ulnar nerve distribution. And one of the most frequently used methods to assess a patient's depth of paralysis is called the train of four. So what that means is for the four electrical stimulations that are sent to the patient, you should be able to count how many twitches are generated on the patient's skin surface. And as a general rule of thumb, the number of twitches will give you an idea about how deeply paralyzed the patient is and whether their paralysis is able to be reversed. Fewer twitches means a higher degree of paralysis. Next, we can also look at the patient's ventilation and oxygenation. To monitor ventilation, look for the patient's chest rise and fall, and auscultate to ensure that there is equal air entry bilaterally. On the monitor, you can also check for waveform capnography and end tidal CO2, or how much CO2 remains at the end of each breath. Take a look at the flow volume loop as well. Notice that with positive pressure ventilation, that loop goes in the opposite direction as what you might have learned in the classroom with spontaneous ventilation. Make sure there isn't any leakage in the system as well by comparing inspiratory and expiratory volumes and ensuring that the bellows of the anesthetic machine aren't collapsed. To monitor oxygenation, take a look at your patient and look for signs of cyanosis, such as along their face or their lips. On the monitor, you can also watch for the patient's pulse oximetry and adjust FiO2 and PEEP as required. Put simply, FiO2 is just the fraction of inspired oxygen, which can be as high as 100% or as low as 21%, which is basically room air. PEEP, on the other hand, which is positive and expiratory pressure, is used for alveolar recruitment. And that's basically a fancy way of saying that the ventilator can keep alveoli expanded even at the end of each breath. PEEP typically starts at around 5 centimeters of water, and it can be increased to recruit alveoli for oxygenation as needed. 
You should pay special attention to PEEP if you're worried about atelectasis in patients with obstructive disease such as asthma or COPD, for example. Okay, I know this is a lot, but we're almost done. The final major systems you want to monitor are the patient's hemodynamics and their volume status. For this, it's back to the basics. Check the patient's blood pressure, heart rate, and ECG for any abnormalities such as hypertension, hypotension, tachycardia or bradycardia, or any arrhythmias. Commonly, you might see an arterial line being used to monitor blood pressure from beat to beat. The key here is to recognize when small changes are occurring and to prevent large swings in a patient's hemodynamics. And to do that, you might need to adjust their IV fluids, their sedation, or their analgesics. But when push comes to shove, it's also important to know that you have your rescue medications available to you. And if a patient is crashing or they're severely hypotensive bradycardic, you know that phenylephrine or ephedrine are there to help. Phenylephrine increases blood pressure but decreases heart rate because it's a pure alpha-1 vasoconstrictor and you can get reflex bradycardia. In contrast, ephedrine increases both blood pressure and heart rate. Also keep an eye out for atropine, which can be used to treat bradycardia as well. Finally, you want to monitor the patient's volume status. And for this, it's important to know the patient's history and what's happening during the surgery. Is the patient severely anemic? Is there high blood loss? If a surgery is high risk, you should check the chart for the patient's blood type and cross-match and discuss that with your supervising staff about available blood products. You can also increase the patient's volume with blood products when needed, but more commonly you'll see crystalloid IV fluids like normal saline or lactated bringers being used. And there you go. I know that this was a lot to get through, but there's a head-to-toe approach to see how your patient is doing intraoperatively. And just to bring it all together, remember that you can monitor your patient's temperature, depth of anesthesia, ventilation, oxygenation, hemodynamics, and volume status. It's a lot to think about. And for most of these, you can start by looking at your patient and then going to the monitor for more detailed information. Now, on to the final part of today's episode. What should you be doing as a medical student during the maintenance phase? Should you be checking your emails? Should should you be chatting with your staff? Should you be obsessing over the complicated monitors? Well, the reality is you don't need to understand everything, but there are a few things that you can do to learn and improve patient care. So for one, come to the OR with some questions. If you've looked something up and you don't quite understand it, or if there's something that's confusing about the patient's history and the anesthetic plan, ensure that you ask questions at an appropriate time to your staff or your resident. Take a look at the patient's chart and try to anticipate what monitoring may be especially important given your patient's comorbidities. Make sure that the drugs are organized along the cart as well and make sure that they're clearly labeled. And if you're at a hospital without an electronic medical system or with only paper records, you can start charting the patient's vitals by hand. This will help you understand the importance of continuous monitoring and when changes may be out of the ordinary. And as a final tip, it never hurts to ask, how can I help if you haven't gotten into the rhythm of running anesthetics regularly? And I have to say that what to do during a maintenance phase is a question that I've 
wrestled with a little bit myself. I would say another equally valuable uh, way to approach this is to look at the list as well and to see if perhaps you could go see the next patient in the preoperative um, holding room and do the assessment, for example, and if that could be of help if the patient that you are currently seeing is stable. All to say there's many things that you can do and it's for you to really tailor that time to your learning and to how to best contribute to the smooth running of the OR. But overall, that's it. You've successfully learned an approach to basic monitoring during the maintenance phase of anesthesia. This episode was definitely a lot to handle all at once, but I promise if you go through it two or three times more, things will start to stick. Spaced repetition is, after all, a great tool for retention. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Airwave Podcast. Just to recap, today we talked about the use of inhaled gases versus total IV anesthesia, a brief head-to-toe approach to monitoring, and some things that you can do practically as a medical student in the OR. Remember, monitoring is about knowing what parameters you're looking for, understanding how to monitor them, and trying to figure out what you can do to change those parameters. So go through that framework for each body system and you'll do just great. And as always, be sure to replay the parts you might not be totally comfortable with. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at at Airwave Podcast and our website where we'll post show notes and some great resources for extra learning. And join us for our next episode where we'll talk about emergence, the process of waking a patient up from their general anesthetic. And until next time. Keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.